Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, September the 19th, 2023. Tuesdays are publishing days when the new books come out. Big days for authors, big days for the publishing business, big days for anyone who's involved with books. Earlier today, I did a show uh, with uh, Bent Flievberg, who uh, is an Oxford University professor of Getting Big Things Done, Big Projects. The book was shortlisted or longlisted for the FT Book of the Year, Business Book of the Year. And I asked him if a book was a big project, and he said it was. As an author, of course, um, it always seems a, a big project. It takes up all your life. My guest today understands this doubly. Uh, his background is as a publishing executive. He ran Macmillan uh, for many years, and now he has his own book. Uh, which is out today, Turning Pages, The Adventures and Misadventures of a Publisher. John Sargent is joining us from Brooklyn, New York. John, happy publishing day. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Well, you're welcome. It's an honor for me to have uh, a, a publishing legend. Uh, <laughs> are, are books big things, John? Yeah. You know, books, are, books are big things, both uh, sort of culturally Historically, culturally, um, and also uh, particularly for the authors who write them, it's uh, it's not easy. They're big projects. Um, uh, Bent talked about every big project being treated like a a, 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 a game, or not a game, a, a Lego project where you build one block at a time. Is that true? Do you think for books as well? I think it depends very much on the book um, and how much research is in it and what type of book you're writing. So uh, my book is a sort of a compilation of the best stories of my career, business life. And uh, as such, yeah, very much like building blocks. Every, you work on one story, then you work on another story, then you work on another story, uh, each individually. And then you have to try to figure out how they, how they go together. So yeah, Lego, Lego for, for me in my book, it would be very accurate. The subtitle of your book, Turning Pages, is The Adventures and Misadventures of a Publisher. You have a very distinguished background, your family. Uh, some of your grandparents are, are famous people in the American publishing industry. Do you think of your choice to go into the publishing business? Was, was that a, a decision to go into the family business, the family trade? Not not really. I through college uh, till sort of halfway through college, I wanted to be a, a marine biologist more than anything else. And and when I was very young, my mom moved out to Wyoming, so I grew up in rural Wyoming and wasn't really deeply involved in in the publishing sort of business or the family business. But I did at a moment when I graduated from college think about, well, this is a family business. Maybe I'll give it a try. Uh, but that was only after I bombed out on a whole bunch of other jobs, to be honest with you. It was during the recession, couldn't get a job. And then I, I decided to go to a publishing course just to see what the family business was. And I got a job out of the publishing course. So I took the first job I was offered. Tell me a little bit about the family and why, why, why it is, in your mind, a family business. Oh, OK. So I'm the, I'm the fourth generation of a publishing family. My great-grandfather started a publishing company. Had to quit work when he was very young. Um, 
I think seventh grade, he went to work and uh, he ended up starting his own publishing company with a partner. And by the time he died, it was the largest publishing company in, uh, in America. Uh, so he Give was us some names, uh, names oh, okay. of the company Frank and Nelson, the grandfather. His, his name's Frank Nelson Doubleday and the company was Doubleday. And, you know, it, it turned into actually a big media company before it was sold to Bertelsmann in 1986. It was a, it was one of the largest, it was the largest, it remained the largest sort of conglomerate publisher in the United States. Uh, and it was run first by my great grandfather, then by my grandfather, then by my father on my mother's side, that um, father, my mother was a double day, but my father ran it and then my uncle ran it. Um, so, and then it was sold. So it, it, uh, it had uh, four family members run it in the, in the course of all those years. Yeah, but Doubleday was the, the publisher of my first book, Cult of the Amateur. Well, you, see how they, it was a great publisher. Look, what, it what was a great publisher. Published. Yeah, I didn't realize it at the time. You know, we all complain. I mean, as you you know better than anyone, writers spend their whole time complaining about their publishers and their agents. But we should be a, a little bit more thankful. So you did you go into? I mean, it's one thing to be a family business, but you didn't work for Doubleday. You worked for Macmillan. Um, no, I, I worked for, I started work, uh, I, I started work as a, a salesman uh, for college textbooks. And then I went to business school and then I went to work for Doubleday. Um, it did not work out for me. Uh, it, uh, after about four years, I decided I'd do better somewhere else. So that was a misadventure, was it, John? That, that, that was very much a misadventure. Was it that I, you felt a little awkward being uh, being in the fa literally in the family business, or it just uh, didn't work? Uh, my uncle and my mother were estranged, and oh my and God. my uncle, uh, I guess I, I'd, I'd say that the family baggage became a little bit too much, and uh, I it was clear to me I had to go. And you went and you and you but you made a, a huge success of it. You ended up running um, Macmillan. Yeah. Do you regret your choice of career? Oh, God, no. I, it's fantastic. The publishing business. It's just fantastic. Uh, a, the people who go into it are um, naturally curious. Uh, they love most of them love books. Uh, and, you know, which which means they're ideas people and so the people you work with are fantastic and then the authors are just amazing i mean think of think of how many people you know in today's world uh, that have written a book and if you're a publisher you you meet those people and the novelists are you know fantastic uh and but then all the sort of from you know politicians celebrity tons of people want to write a book and and it's just a, it's a fascinating world from beginning to end, full of incredible, incredible people. So it was great. I, I just loved it. John, do you think that the publishing industry does a good job leveraging, I'm not sure if that's the right word, it's a business school word, leveraging that talent? After all, as you say, you aggregate some of the yeah. smartest people in the world, fiction writers, but particularly nonfiction writers. Yeah. And yet... I, I can't think of a way in which the publishing industry has built on on that network to 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 to, to be able to compete with the the yeah. the, the, the multi 
billion, sometimes trillion dollar networks of our digital age. Did, yeah. did, um, did the publishing industry or has the publishing industry missed the trick in terms of adding to its relationship with its, its writers and not appreciating the real value, which may not be in the book, but in the yeah. talent? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think that's accurate. It, it's a strange, it's a strange thing, right? Because the people want to write a book, and 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 you get together with people over the concept that they're going to write a book, and you help them write the book. But beyond that, there's not really an avenue that says, "Hey, can you help us with these things?" Uh, it's not that sort of relationship because the writer is the talent. Right. So think of it in Hollywood or in music. The talent is what's important. And the talent's job is to be the talent. Uh, and it is your job as a publisher to get the best out of that talent, not to use that talent for your own ends. Um, in the old days, they did it a lot more. I remember Dick Snyder, who used to run Simon & Schuster, once told Richard Sarnoff and I that we were misplaying everything and that we, we published all these politicians, we should call them up, uh, go down to Washington and get them to intervene in, uh, you know, some of the legal issues that we were having. And that's just not a natural thing. So I think you have something there that it's, it, it isn't sort of a two way uh, street, um, but it, it doesn't feel natural to me. That doesn't feel natural. I wouldn't call uh, uh, our authors to try to help them with, get them to help me with publishing issues would be unnatural. It's a mistake, you, but it does feel unnatural. You ran one of the big publishing houses, Macmillan. Was there stuff that if you could have just burnt the whole thing to the ground and started again, was there stuff that you would do or would have done? Oh, yeah. The publishing is hugely inefficient. It's a, there, there's a big infrastructure in place. And we are gatekeepers in many ways that are inefficient. Uh, but it's a it's a big ecosystem, and the authors depend on it, and the the uh, writers depend on it. And there's a there's a responsibility that I always felt an enormous responsibility that uh, my my job was to help those people get their book published and publish it as well as possible. It wasn't to maximum efficiency, maximize profit, you know, see what the earnings look like. The, the weighty responsibility were things like uh, big freedom of speech issues uh, and sort of the whole business. You know, if you look at what happened to music, right, when it, when it went through the digital transformation, music sort of fell apart for the musicians, right? It became very hard to make a living for musicians. And, and a lot of what I concentrated on and what others in the business concentrated on is over the last, you know, 15, 20 years is make sure that does not happen to authors, right? That yeah, authors you, 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 you were very money. much involved with digital rights. You got involved with a big fight with libraries um, yeah. on, on, on stealing content. Um, but, and I want to get to that, but I, I wonder on the business side, I take your point that of course a book is more than just, uh, a business, uh, but there's something profound. I, I just speaking as a, an author, written a number of books. There seems to be something profoundly archaic about the book industry and the way it reports 
um, sales. It's astonishingly archaic. It's as if almost they've gone out of their way to make it so difficult to understand that most authors just throw up their hands and give up. Is there some <laughs> truth to that? I mean, I'm not saying you all, you big publishers got together and said, how are we going to confuse authors so much that they'll give up trying to figure out how many books they sell? But why is it so hard for an author to actually understand whether their book is selling or not? So the, the biggest reason it's complicated is that books, unlike almost anything else in America, are sold returnable. So when we ship books as publishers to, a, let's say, we ship a thousand books to Barnes and Noble, and the author says, how many books did you sell? Well, the answer is we didn't sell any to a consumer yet. And Barnes and Noble can send us all 1,000 back. So very difficult not to set if you if you let's say you send out 100,000 books and the author says, how is my book selling? Well, the, the issue is we sell books through incredible numbers of stores. It goes through all kinds of different stores. It goes to wholesalers who sell it on to retailers, wholesalers who sell it on to libraries and schools. And we don't get visibility as publishers into a lot of that information. Now, now we do, but for many, many years, we didn't have visibility. So if we said to you, we've sold 100,000 books, you get out your calculator, you take that times your royalty and say, woohoo, I just made, you know, $400,000. Well, at the end of the day, maybe you only made, you know, $15,000 because maybe all the books come back. Who came so, up with that idea? It seems a very bad idea from the publishing and from the author's point of view to, to allow uh, retailers to return books. No, it's a great idea. I'll tell you why. Um, think of go into a bookstore and look at the bookstore. Look at how many items there are on the shelf. And then think how long it takes to read a book. So how can you convince a retailer to stock a new experimental novel? They don't have time to read all those new experimental novels. They can't possibly take a risk on them. But if you say you can send it back, if it doesn't sell, then they'll say, okay, we'll take a risk and we'll put it on our shelf. And without that, what you'd have in the bookstore are books that booksellers were really sure they could sell. So lots of John Grisham, lots of frontless bestsellers, lots of backlist books that do sell, but none of the small and medium, small and experimental and high risk books because they have to pay to ship them back. And, and, and that's enough expense. But if they have to eat the cost of the book and scrap it, uh, it becomes a non-profitable, un very unprofitable business very quickly. So what I'm basically saying is there's a ton of inefficiency built into the market because of the way the market looks. All those tens of, I mean, think of the bookstore versus a, a grocery store per square foot. How many different items there are for sale in a bookstore is remarkable and very little foot traffic. Although, like a grocery store, if, if you go to the front desk of a Barnes & Noble and a book is there, it's likely that someone's paid for that positioning. Isn't it? Um, not anymore at Barnes & Noble. They don't accept that at Barnes & Noble anymore. It's one of the things James Daunt did differently when he took it over. 
So at present, no. The Barnes and Noble store manager decides what goes in the front, not the public. And no one's saying about position. So he likes the the the, the manager. She he or she likes the book, and so they'll just put the book up front. Yeah, because they know their audience, right? If you're a bookstore, your audience. If you're a bookstore in New York City, or a bookstore in Omaha, Nebraska, or a bookstore in Southern California, you're going to have a different audience for different books. And only the bookstore manager who is in that community knows his customers and knows what books they like. What That's about the of an independent bookstore, right? And always has been. What about, John, the, the advance system, the idea that authors get an advance irrespective of sales, um, which seems to be bound up with the, the system of, of literary agents? Is that healthy? Do you think that all these huge advances, which uh, agents, particularly super agents, seem to seem to win, has that been good for the industry? And shouldn't authors simply be paid in terms of sales rather than these advances? Because once you get the advances, you lose interest in sales. A really good question, right? The, the plain fact of the matter is if authors just made uh, – if just made the royalty earnings they earned, they wouldn't make as much money. So your question is, who should make the money, the author or the publisher? And the author advance system allows the author to make a much bigger percentage of the pie. So big authors, publishers don't make a lot on big recurring authors. The advances are so big that the authors are taking, you know, 70, 80 percent of, of the profit, uh, sometimes all the profit. Uh, so without that system, the publishers would make more, the authors would make less. And so I, I, I find it hard to say it would be good not to have author advances. If I was a publisher, I want to make a lot of money. I'd say that's a good system. But in the end, what I want is lots of authors being able to make a living writing books. So I guess I'm a I'm a supporter of the big advance uh, in, in that it, it allows the authors a larger sl- slice of the pie and, and rightfully slow, so probably, right? They're the talent. And what about the Mr. or the Mrs. 15%, the agents? Do you think agents, literary agents, do they do a generally a good job? If you could, at the click of your finger, just get rid of agents, would that be a good or a bad thing? Good question. Uh, I think it'd be a bad thing. Um, there's good agents and there's bad agents, just like there's good publishers and bad publishers uh, and good authors and bad authors. Uh, I My agent was fantastic. Now that I'm a, I have two. I have a On turning pages. I, yeah, I, have a, I have a children's agent and I have a adult agent and because I wrote some children's books and both of them were fantastic, right? They, they, they are the human being that is a hundred percent on the author's side because the publisher is trying to make money and trying to, you know, run a business. The agent's job is to take care of the author. And as such, they're valuable. And, and if you get an agent who's tenacious, well, take it, take yourself, right? You're going to publish a book. If you don't have an agent, you're going to look and say, who, who am I going to submit this book to? How am I going to find out which editors like the type of book I like? And a great agent 
has friends in all the publishing houses who are editors and calls them up and says, you're going to love this book. You got to read it. Don't just breathe. Joseph breathe through the second half is fantastic. Please read it. And they have a relationship and they read it. And the good, the good agents of my agent was like a dog with a bone. She just kept working until she found someone to publish the book. And no temptation to have it published by Doubleday, right? <laughs> there was, a, there was, I, there was, but you know, I, I, uh, I suspected there would be difficulties there and, and it, it didn't work out, but, but there was a temptation. There's always a temptation, John. Um, what, what, so the, the author does the writing, the agent does the selling, and often they come up with the project. They're the ones who realize the sale. What does the publisher do? Well, the publisher does a lot of work. Uh, the publisher is responsible for designing the book, the physical object of the book. The cover, you mean? No, the insides, the typeface, the insides. Is there, you know, are there inserts? How does it look? Is it a big type, small, dense? You know, you've picked up books in the bookstore and say, whoa, God, this thing is dense as hell. Um, that's all publisher decision. Uh, so they're responsible for making the artifact, getting the artifact printed, storing it in a warehouse, shipping it to the retailers, and then the magic of it, making the audience know that the book is out there, right? Saying to the audience, here is the book, finding the audience, easier today than it used to be, finding the audience and making sure they know the book is out there. And, and that's, that's what you get paid for, right? Is creating the book, distributing the book, and then finding the audience. That's what publishers well, do. So a publisher is, in, in many ways, uh... Uh, that that their biggest value is in marketing. Yeah, marketing, publicity, you know, finding the audience and getting your book in front of the audience is what the publisher does. Why do you think, John Semeny, and, and I have this on my show because I deal directly with publicists? Why do so many authors hire independent publicists if 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 the if if the core business of the publisher is to is to drive marketing? Okay, so what you have in a publishing house, particularly a big publishing house, is a constant stream of books, right? So every week on Tuesday, new books are published. And it's a frontless driven business, right? And lots of books are published on every Tuesday. And the publisher has a staff, you know, that, that markets and publishes those books as they come up. But the next Tuesday, there's another set coming. And the Tuesday after that, there's another set coming. So you get this small window of time uh, for this book the next two weeks. You get a small window of time where your book is of interest. And publishers, if you have smaller books, oftentimes don't have enough resource to have a very senior, very experienced person do the book. And in that case, you often get an outside publicist. There's also authors who work for different publishers, have different publishers publishing their books and have a publicist that they just love. And they always want to use that publicist who's an outside publicist. So there's a number of reasons why, uh, why authors get outside publicists and publishers generally cooperate. It, there's a little bit of, you know, don't step on my toes back and forth that goes on, but generally publishers are very happy to, 
to have it because it's an extra resource. The outside publicist is almost always paid for by the author. So it's less expense for the publisher. As a rumor, John, I'm sure you've heard it amongst authors, certainly after a few drinks in the bar, <laughs> that uh, publishers pretty much know which books are going to do well and which aren't. They make their bets early before pub day, and they can, I mean, they're always surprises, of course, but they often kill their babies because they simply, as you suggested, don't have enough bandwidth to promote yeah. aggressively every book. Is there any truth to that? Sure. So look, the, the end of the day, oftentimes publishers buy books uh, based on nothing other than a two-page proposal, right? And a meeting with the author. Uh, they expect a book to come in that is spectacular. And sometimes a book does not, it's not spectacular. And so what happens is, as to you put go, it mildly, John, what? <laughs> to put it politely, mildly. <laughs> well, I'm trying to be you know, polite. <laughs> Political, but, but, right. but so what happens is as the books come in for any given season, so as the books are coming in for the fall season, the sort of leaderboard switches, right? Everybody in the house is reading the books in the publishing house and everybody's sort of coalescing around books. So people are saying, you know, God, did you read that new novel? It's fantastic. And then other people read it and they're saying, oh, it's fantastic. We can't miss this one. Whoa. And they're calling the, the people at retail and saying, whoa, you guys got to hold this book. It's fantastic. So the enthusiast, very much a human business. The enthusiasm around books changes. So you might have a big book by a, a famous author that's coming in. And, you know, I don't know, something happens and they have a bad go of it and the book is not very good. And at the same time, you might have a book by a midlist author that comes in that you look at and you say, my God, this is like four or five times better than their last three books. And then the mark, you have X amount of resources and those resources are reallocated as the books come in. So, yeah, you have a bunch of books that don't get a lot of attention. And that's one of the sad things about publishing. And and as far as picking them, it's such a it's such a crap. We, we would publish these fantastic books that just wouldn't work. And then every once in a while you get a book that was, you know, it was OK, but the magic would happen and it would just take off and you'd end up selling two million copies and you never know which ones those are. You know, ask ask anybody who was at Doubleday at the time uh, if they ever thought John Grisham's The Firm would be as big as it was. Now, people liked it. They loved it. But nobody thought it was going to be that big. Right. And and if you look at the books that are big today, you know, Colleen Hoover, who thought Colleen Hoover was going to be that big? Well, she started on her own. Well, yeah. And I want to get to the book after the break. We're just we're going to take a short break in a second, John. But the really, it seems the sad thing about publishing is you can't. A publisher can't call up an author and and say, "We've decided your book isn't really that good, so we're going to pretty much ignore it." So for for, for authors, um, what advice would you give if they're not hearing from their publisher saying this is the most amazing thing we've ever read? It, it often means that the publisher is kind of lost interest in the project. Is that fair? Not, not all. Yeah, that's not entirely fair. But, it, you know, the, 
the the truth of the matter is publishers depend on the authors, right? Um, in the marketing side as well as the writing side. Because the readers and the people who are being interested in the book want to hear from the authors. They, they don't, you know, publishers don't go on tour for a book, right? People want to hear from the author. So a lot of the publisher's job is getting the author in front of their uh, constituency. And, and we count on the authors to help us with that. So if you go to a publisher today and you said, I've got a self-help book. And what I've discovered is that if you, I don't know, if you uh, clean your house for the first half an hour of every day before you go off to work, and when you come home, you eat a meal and you finish it by 8.30 at night, uh, and you're in bed by 11, your life will be better. I don't know. That comes forward. The first thing the publisher is going to ask you is, how many people do you have in your social network that you can reach. And if you say, well, I have 98 people on Instagram, they're not gonna be interested in the book, period. And it's just that for those types of books, the author has to have reach. I guess, yeah, the the biggest tragedy of the whole business, and this isn't a critique of publishing, is that even the worst books, most authors pour their their lives, their souls into. So it's very hard to tell someone their book isn't very good because you're telling them in a way that they're not very good. It's huge. It's a, it's a people business. And you know, if you write a book, you're putting your heart and soul into something. It's your art, right? It's your creative. Uh, And you, you have to be brave to put your creative out there to the world. And if the world looks at your creative and says, you know what? It's not good. It hurts. Right. So, you know, you there's stories of authors who get, you know, rejected, you know, 30 times by 30 public, 30 different publishers. And then, you know, they publish it themselves and the book works. Right. Publishers don't. It's subjective. It's all subjective. And so um, you have to have a lot of faith that what you did has worth and then keep going and keep pushing. and, And those are the authors who make it. Well, we're going to talk about your work, John, after the break, Turning Pages, The Adventures and Misadventures of a Publisher. Uh, I particularly want to talk about Amazon and, 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 and rights management and your experience at Macmillan. Uh, we're going to take a short break, thank our sponsor, Liberties, uh, quarterly journal of culture and politics. Going to run a short ad and then we'll be back with John Sargent. Publishing legend and the author of a new book is um, is Page Turner, Turning Pages: The Adventures and Misadventures of a Publisher. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties. It's not just a journal of ideas; it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com and you can uh, even subscribe. Uh, We are with John Sargent, the author of Turning Pages. His memoir, uh, The Adventures and Misadventures of a Publisher, 
It's not possible to think about publishing these days, John, without thinking of Amazon. You had your skirmishes in overall terms. Is Amazon a good or a bad development for the publishing industry? Well, I think it's overall good. There's no question about it, right? It's done two things. It's made books available to everyone, pretty much everywhere, on a very quick turnaround time. And one of the problems with books is, you know, there's millions of books in the backlists out there, and there's hundreds of thousands published every year, and no retailer can can carry all those. So the plain fact of the matter is, you can now look up a 15-year-old book that you can't find in any retail store in America, and you can have it delivered to your door the next day, and that's hugely powerful. So overall, I think it's a great. It, they've been great for publishing. They also, because of their discount, they lowered the prices of books, which makes them more accessible to consumers. And, and that's good uh, for publishing. And finally, with their self-publishing operations, they, they made the process much more democratic, right? Publishers are gatekeepers, retail buyers and wholesalers are gatekeepers. And now if those gatekeepers tell you your book, you know, is not going to make it through, you can publish it yourself. So I think for the health of sort of, books and for the marketplace i think amazon's a big plus but they've also a bit of a bully uh, you yeah. stood up to them at uh, macmillan uh, yeah tell me a little bit about how and why you stood up to them and the outcome of that so the it was the the main concern was the digital transformation right going from the physical book to the ebook or or now the audio download now uh, and making sure that the author could still make enough money. Uh, unlike music, you know, we wanted to make sure the authors could make enough money and that retail bookstores could survive. Because remember, what happened with with um, video is, you know, the, those video stores disappeared uh, pretty fast and the music stores all disappeared. And, you know, the independent bookstore is oftentimes the cultural hub of medium-sized cities in America and, and even large cities, it's the cultural hub. And so it, the urge was to protect that ecosystem as we went into the digital transformation. And plain fact of the matter is Amazon uh, with the Kindle, through their own initiative and through their own hard work, made a better shopping experience and a better device. And they had 80 or 90% market share and their intent was to make the prices hugely reasonable to move the whole business into uh, the digital side. And they're very aggressive about it. And we looked at it and said, okay, right now you can charge you know, $25 for an author's new work when it hits the store in hardcover. Uh, and the consumer thinks it's worth $25. They seem to want the consumer to think a new work is only worth $9.99. And that was a problem and a, and a big problem. And so I just happened to be the guy who walked into it when, when it became a clearly a, a big issue. Apple came out with the iPad, the start of the iPad, and there was going to be a bookstore on it. And we agreed to have our books on the bookstore and, and uh, five publishers agreed to do that. And I just didn't, I had great respect for the guys at Amazon and I'd worked with them a long time and, I didn't think it was right for them to hear about it in the, in the papers and, and, and read about it. Uh, 
so I got in a plane and I flew out there to see them. And I told them about our change in terms. And who, who they, were you dealing with uh, when you went out to? Oh, I was dealing with uh, Russ Grandinetti and Laura Parco and Steve Kessel and David Nagar, senior senior folks who sort of reported to Jeff Bezos, but not the Jeff level. And uh, they they were really pissed, and they uh, they took the buy buttons off our books, and and so overnight, actually, from I found out about it at the moment they did it, they stopped selling all our stuff, um, and that was you know. Tens of thousands of books, uh, all our authors, new books, old books. Everything. This was a big deal for everyone, wasn't it? Especially oh, it was a big middle. deal. It, 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 um, it was a huge deal, actually, because it was the first test of the digital distribution and of Amazon when a supplier refused to bow to what they wanted. And they, as to retaliate, they took all our books off the shelf. So Amazon stopped plummeted that that you know over those next three days amazon stock plummeted and and uh everybody watched because the sort of how books would be sold in the future was dependent on it and would it turn out like movies would it turn out like music would bookstores survive all that was sort of at play and by chance i was the guy in the middle so well it wasn't by chance was it john i mean it wasn't you just happened to be there you must have made the choice some of the other CEOs of the large houses had, uh, shall we say, not quite as big balls as you in taking Amazon <laughs> off. Well, I tell you, Carolyn Reedy, who ran Simon & Schuster, had every bit as much courage as I had, absolutely. Um, but I think it, it could have been any number of things, right? It could have been I was the guy who went out and spoke to them. It could have been we were the smallest of the big publishers at that time. Um, and maybe they wanted to do that. And it could have been I had a really good relationship with those guys and they knew I would uh, work hard to make it solve the problem as opposed to becoming sort of uh, driven by anger or emotion. So I'll never know why it was uh, why it was me, but it was certainly me. But you won. You got what you wanted. It was tough. By the time it was all said and done, it was eight years later and we were at the, you know, Apple was at the Supreme Court. But uh, at the end of the day, yes, the publishers control the price of ebooks. Uh, to this day, Amazon doesn't control it. The publishers control it. And that was what we had to have to protect the bookstores, to protect the authors, to protect our business. We couldn't allow Amazon to just keep dropping the price because they had at that time, they had 90% of the market. Um, so, yeah, we, I, it doesn't feel like we won. It feels like we've reached a conclusion as an industry that was the right conclusion, right? We, we managed our way through the digital transition and came out the other side well as an industry. And, you know, authors still making a great living selling, you know, writing books. And, and the so, book survived. I mean, I guess the yeah. physical book is... A more viable than the the CD. Yeah. Did you get any grief from your board? Was your board entirely supportive? You must have had one or two rather interesting board meetings on this. Oh, we had a lot of board meetings. Um, they were very supportive. Uh, we we owned by a private family in Germany who had deep and strong beliefs. Europe is actually much more book centric than the, than the United States. 
Uh, they have put a higher cultural value on books than, than America does. And so, and they saw Amazon as, you know, a threat to the world of books, not just to the books in the United States. So yeah, they, they weren't, uh, they weren't real happy with the final cost at the end of the day of the whole thing, but, uh, they were supportive hundred percent of the way. I did not have to make arguments. I, I was not under pressure from our. Tell me a little bit more about that family. Uh, they're the, the Von Holtzbrinks. Uh, so it was a, a sister and two brothers um, and their father had started the company. And, uh, you know, they had a belief in the value of books and, and literature. Um, they had a, 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 a deep sense of the cultural value of the work that we did. And so it made them great. And the, when we had these battles, we had to fight. They were always supportive. They always were. And tell me a little bit more about your fight with uh, rights holders on digital and 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 um, and, and, and libraries. Um, uh, I know yeah. you were very much on the forefront of that as well, which is a very yeah. important issue for authors yeah. and for the internet in more broadly. Yeah. So very very. It's very complicated. Copyright law is complicated and Congress doesn't do a good job. So it has to be litigated at the end of the day. And the first big thing was with the AAP and Google, when Google wanted to copy every book in every language ever published on earth and make all the information inside those books available in snippet form. Uh, we fought that, that was an eight year battle. Uh, and Richard Sarnoff and I were the lead negotiators for the publishers and that. So you fought uh, and, Google and you fought Amazon and you survived. Yeah, yeah. And the libraries, at the end of the day, the libraries, that was the, pain, that was the most painful one because, you know, I love libraries and everybody in publishing loves libraries and the authors love libraries and we all went to the libraries because we're all book people. But uh, at the end of the day, with eBooks, when you get to the point where you can borrow books ebooks from the library without friction, right? You just go on your device and as easily as getting an ebook from Amazon, you can get that ebook from your library for free. Uh, it begins to make you feel that books should be free. And you have this expectation that you should have all books available to you at any time for no money. And in the old days, you had to go to the library to get your book and maybe they didn't have it. And then Christ, you didn't get back to the library and you had to pay the late fee. And sometimes they didn't have it on the shelves. And, you know, there was this friction and the friction was gone. So it was a bit, that was a big battle. That battle keeps going. I, they've still got to solve that problem. And I know so, you're not a big fan of the internet archive. Um, yeah. Which is up the road from me. I rather like those guys. What, what, what <laughs> is it about them that troubles you? Look, any, Anybody, any organization, any organization that believes books and the information contained inside of them, people should have free access to it, means the business model of publishing falls apart. And it's great when it happens for the people, right? It's great. Oh, God, look, I have this whole archive of these fantastic books and I can get any one of them for free and think what it does for research and for all that. It's an, it's a, it's utopian, you know, it's fantastic. But if we go there, it means 
new books, you will not be able to make a living writing new books because they'll go into the Internet Archive and they'll be available for free. Um, and so much. Look at the Hollywood writer strike we're having now. Right. So much of the value of books comes down the road, not at pub date, but think of the books you've read that were published, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And you can still go buy those books. And the author is still getting money from those books because it's their creative work. They should get money from it. And the publisher should get money. They put, they pick the book. They put in all the financial work, all that elbow grease to publish it well. They should get money for it. And if you, if you say everything should be available for free, you take that income stream out, then you have a problem. And so, yeah, I, I uh, you know, from from WikiLeaks all the way down, uh, I, I I think people should pay should have to pay if they want to take an author's work. They should have to pay for it when it first comes out, and you know, with exceptions, sure, on a limited basis, libraries. Always the means test. We always said if you give us a means test, we're happy for you to have the digital work. If you can put the the books into um, communities that are disadvantaged, lower income uh, zip codes, and make those books for free, I got no problem with it at all. It's interesting you mentioned the Hollywood uh, writer strike, John, which is, of course, partly uh, in reaction to AI. Do you see AI changing the industry? Yeah, of course, right? And we have to be very careful about it. I, I'm not, I'm not in there anymore, so it's not my fight. But uh, if you think, I always think we publish Nora Roberts, and Nora is fantastic, and my God, she works hard. I mean, holy cow, that woman works hard. Now, someone could, you could go into a, a chat bot and say, okay, uh, write me a Western that is like Nora Roberts, and if the data set has ingested every Nora Roberts book over all these years they could quite easily come up with a Western that sounds just like Nora Roberts. Nora Roberts should be paid for that. That's her work that's creating that book. Now it's artificial intelligence that's writing it, but it's her work that's creating it. She needs to be paid. And that will be, it'll be very interesting. So you're saying that you think it's right that some of these big time authors like, not Nora Roberts herself, but authors like Nora Roberts, are aggressively addressing open AI and saying, where are you getting your, your intelligence from? If you're digesting all our books and then spitting out our style, yeah. you need to pay us. Yeah, and that's for publishers. That's a publisher battle. That's part of what we do for authors, would be a publisher battle. That's, that's what happened with the digital transformation, right? The publishers took on the, took on the sort of attempting to get there, along with the Authors Guild. Um, but it was, it was a, you have to have a concentrated group of people. John, you, you took on Amazon and survived. You're brave enough to look them in the eye. And they were yeah. the ones who stepped down. You look Google in the eye, they stepped down. You took on yeah. the Internet Archive, they stepped down. You should be a hero, but you left Macmillan uh, under quite controversial circumstances. <laughs> Do you yes, see your career as a success? Oh, sure. I Look, I, I left at eight. I was fired at age 63. Why were um, you fired? It seems weird that a guy like you who took on all these big companies would be fired. 
Yeah, so I, I was a CEO for 24 years. And basically, I got a, uh, when the pandemic happened, uh, I, I knew what we would do really well in the pandemic. Book publishing does well in times of stress. It's countercyclical. And you could feel that people wanted to read more. You could feel it. You could see it in the sales numbers. And I knew it was going to go well for us, but our owners didn't feel that. They were sitting in Germany. And so they, he, my boss, Stefan, he um, kept trying to find ways to protect our capital base to make us more profitable. So, you know, doing things like cutting employee salaries and things like that. And I, I tangled with him on that stuff and uh, we, we went head to head a bunch and then he gave me a direct order to do something that I thought was not in the best interest of our employees in the middle of the pandemic. And I, I, I just, I looked at it and it was wrong. It was wrong financially and it was wrong to do to the, to our employees. Um, so I refused to do it. And the next day he fired me. Wow. Well. That's quite an achievement, John. Uh, finally, um, and I appreciate your honesty. Uh, you 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 tell you tell it as it is, as you do in turning pages, the adventures and misadventures of a publisher. This is not just a very serious book about no. fights. It's a book of human stories. So perhaps you can end, John, with one story from the book that you're particularly keen on. One anecdote that somehow captures the beauty. Of, of of the business you you say it's fantastic the publishing industry tell me a story that okay. reflects why and how it is fantastic well i'll tell you sir, what the what these stories are what this book is is a collection of stories that are actually good stories right and one of the things about good stories is if you recognize the people in the story it makes it somehow more memorable and powerful so i'll tell you what i'll tell you is a very short story um uh, that gives an idea of the fun in the book, right? So I've, I've been asked by a friend to uh, go coach somebody famous about writing a book um, just as a favor, as a, as a guy who's going to help them through the process. So uh, I, I go up to Stanford, Connecticut on the train and I get off and I'm in this completely run-of-the-mill sort of Marriott hotel. And I go in and I give the fake name I've been assigned at the desk and the <laughs> The guy behind the desk says, okay. And this big guy comes out the back. He's got an earplug in. He's security. And, and uh, he says, well, follow me. And I, I'm following. I said, well, what's your name? And he said, I'm, I'm Bob. And I said, is that your real name? And he said, no, of course not. And, and so we hmm. get to this hospitality suite. Man. And it's an ugly ass hospitality suite, right? Shades are pulled, smells like old smoke, disjointed furniture sitting in the middle of a big room. And I sit down and, and uh, I'm the first one there. And I've asked my, the head of marketing to come with me to talk to this guy. And, and so before he shows up, I'm, I'm sitting there alone in this room. And the door opens and in walks the guy. And, and he, he comes and he shakes my hand. And he sticks his hand out. And I look at the hand and I say, oh, my God. I wasn't expecting that because the hand is huge. The palm is thick. The fingers are long and skinny and it's a, it's, it's sort of white looks almost bleached. It looks like a big truck driver's hand. And this is not a big guy. Yeah. And uh, so I say, hi. And it's, it is in fact, Michael Jackson. And Michael is wearing these aviator shades 
that you cannot see through. No matter how you look, you can't see through. He never takes them off. We sit for an hour. We talk about him publishing the book and, and we talk about uh, the various things he might have to do or not do. He's obsessed with Madonna because Madonna has just come out with sex. And in sex, the Madonna book, there's naked pictures of Madonna. And Michael actually asked me to my face, he <laughs> says, John, she showed her patootie. Am I going to have to show myself in my book? And I said, Michael, I hope I'm you said yes. Straight face. You can't look at the marketing guy because, you know, what a question. I said, nobody wants to see your privates, Michael. Do you have to just trust that me? That might have sold a few more copies, John. It? <laughs> it might have. So, but I'm not, in this case, it's not for me to publish a book. I'm just an advisor. So, uh, so we go through, we have a fun time for about an hour. And at the end, we're getting set to leave. And I started asking Michael about his flexibility because I've always been fascinated. How does he, how did he create the moonwalk? And how the hell can you do that? And how flexible does his body have to be? So I'm asking these questions. We're having a great time. And, and John Cunningham is sitting on the couch, the marketing guy, and he's huge. Think John Candy huge, John Goodman huge. He's a big guy. And he says, you know, I'm really flexible too. And Michael and I look at him like, what? <laughs> and he says, no, I am. I'm really flexible. I can put my uh, foot behind my neck. And I look at John and Michael sitting there. And I said, I don't know, Michael, I'd like to see that. Would you like to see that? And Michael, just like a kid, jumps up out of his seat. Yes, yes, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that. So I say, John, you're on. John takes his foot, lifts it over his head. Oh, my God. Puts it behind his neck. Michael just starts jumping up and down with excitement. For, and, you know, the next night he's on the Grammy. He's getting a Grammy Award. Nowhere near as excited as he was to see John Cunningham put his foot behind his neck. So, I mean, that's a very little story. So, and there are lots of stories like that in John Sargent's new book, uh, yeah. Turning Pages, The Adventures and Misadventures of a Publisher, including amazing stories about Monica Lewinsky. So, John, congratulations on the book, and thank you so much. I really appreciate your honesty in dealing with some of these issues that yeah. authors obsess over. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.